Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to the Ruler podcast. Phil Burt spent more than a decade with British Cycling and later Team Sky, working with Olympic and professional cyclists as chief physio to the medal factory. In a moment, he'll be explaining how he's planning to use some of those skills and experiences to help lesser mortals like you and me. Also, in a world ruled by carbon, what's the future for custom-built steel? We talk to two frame makers and the man who says we should all be building our own bikes. And our technical editor, Stuart Clapp, explains why he nearly bought a sex toy to sort out his saddle saw. First, though, Phil Burt. After 12 years working with British Cycling, five as a lead physio and consultant for Team Sky, um, it was about time that I created something where I could work with um, normal cyclists, as it were, after working with Elite and polishing those for so long. And the idea behind it is that, um, obviously, I've written a book on bike fit. I'm very passionate. When I came as a, a physio into cycling, I got very into the ergonomics of it because often that was where you a lot of the overuse injuries came from. And I looked for the manual and there wasn't one. <laughs> and then when I found out world ex- experts, and so I've been immersed in this world of making a man work with a machine for a long time and um i find it fascinating uh, especially because if you get you get it right you can change someone's uh, comfort and their ability or uh, and their ability to win medals and so on and so forth philbert innovation is about bringing what i know over those 12 years to normal people you know um it, both in one way and a, a service way so um, injury assessment i get a lot of emails from frustrated cyclists who um go, go and see normal sports medicine doctors and physios and can't get their issue sorted because cycling is a very different sport to say running and other ones um and i also get uh, frustrated through projects like i've done with project ouch and saddle sores where i think um products that are supplied to the cyclists aren't maybe what they could be so at the other end of the scale the service and then what we're going to try and do is make better products for cyclists um cycling is an interesting sort of industry in that it's very very stuck in its ways and sometimes you know did you have a background in cycling at all when you started working with with cyclists um no only in that i like cycling um if everyone's ever met me i'm not of the size and disposition to be any successful as it could be quite a big guy but um i've always loved cycling and always loved um you know 
know, at the iconic races and uh, used to go away with my wife and try and cycle up these huge climbs in uh, France, you know, and just get to the top of it. Um, I actually spent my formative years in rugby and uh, with Sail Sharks and we, we were very successful there. And then I've been very lucky in my career joined British Cycling and we've been on a meteoric rise ever since. Well, what do you think the sort of changes are in the understanding of sort of cyclist bodies and how they interact in, in the years that you've been involved in it? Well, that's a really interesting thing. When I was talking with Chris Hoy last night, he was saying like, you know, in 2006 when I joined, he he he'd identified that looking after his body was really important, but didn't receive the support that they never used to have anything there. And now we have like a, you know, a huge team of support personnel. I mean, it can swing too far, actually. He was, we, were saying, we were discussing last night how some of the athletes may lack responsibility now looking after themselves. But where were cycling's changed? I think, you know, in my time in it, when I joined, I talk about you, but I never saw someone warming down on a turbo after a Tour de France stage before Team Sky started it. Now it seems almost everybody does it. And uh, the other aspect of that is... Um, Resistance training, so off the bike training. Now the sprinters have always done big heavy weights, and uh, because they need to for power. But I think um, it's interesting that certain uh, individual cyclists are now embracing that that concept. If you look at the research, resistance training definitely makes you better as an endurance cyclist. I guess it's easy to see the impact that you know um, uh, your sort of work can have with. Olympic athletes or, or professional athletes, uh, how much difference can you actually make for the average cyclist? Though my job is, uh, has generally been in the last few years polishing. If you ask me, I mean, I can add one percent to Bradley Wiggins or one percent to you know Jared Thomas or whatever, like that. and that's really really important when the difference between gold and silver is less, far less than one percent in aero power, whatever you're talking. I actually think the gains that a normal cyclist make are absolutely huge. And so, when I've dipped my toe into that water, helping out friends, family, or people, um, I've really enjoyed it because it's. It, the, the, the knowledge that I've been exposed to and the experience I have means that we can guide people very quickly to better solutions. Biking is funny, isn't it? We, every bike turns up with the same length cranks, the same length, we found a pass, the same stance width, and yet that isn't a reflection of you, your injuries or whatever. So I think, yep, yeah, I actually think I get, I'm really excited because you can actually make a massive difference to some people. On one side, when I see them in a service level arrangement where we'll spend um, time looking at them and, uh, you know, uh, what we, what we need to do is sit down with people and understand what their goal is. I think that's where the bike fit industry has a bit of a problem. A lot of people think that it's about selling bikes, and a lot of the business models are based upon that. I'm never going to sell you a bike. What I'm going to do is sell you a dream and goal once, we, once you tell me what it is, and then I, we can go and find all the bits and bobs. Um, whether you've got very little money or huge amounts of money, we can go and find the bits that work for you. Um, and, that, and then that's it. On the other end of it, like I say, the product end, I can only see maybe six people a day. But if we can make, say, a women's cycling short that works better for women, how about we get 100,000 more women cycling because they couldn't cycle before? You've mentioned saddle sores uh, before. That's a particular interest of yours, isn't it? Or is it <laughs> yeah. I've or become was. known for it, yes. Um, well, it, it, it was because um, I basically um, I get a lot of recognition for this, but it, it was a team of people they put together. And what we recognise, it was one of the best projects ever because... We didn't know what the size of the problem we have until we basically asked the riders in a very safe space. So we got women talking to women, men talking to men. Um, what would you want with this? And all of a sudden, this huge issue came out where, yeah, people weren't being stopped completely from cycling. But we often talk about the AER in um, training. So the AER is availability, amount of effort you can produce in your recovery. So if you match all, if you maximise those, you know you, you're available to train today. You can put 100% effort and you recover well for the next training session. Surely that will map, in the end amount to winning. 
But they were saying, like, oh, I can't put as much effort as I want to because I'm sore. and I don't, I'm not recovering. The soreness is getting worse and worse. Um, and we put a team of experts together, which we had a skin health package that uh, basically um, all the posters around the velodrome about how to look after yourself um, you know, after riding that, uh, around your sort of pelvis and genitalia. We also then went and challenged the UCI rule on saddle tilt, which um, I put some research together and we managed to change the rule on cycle, which is fantastic because saddle tilt is really important in getting your saddle in the right place. But then we also did some really interesting things with the kit where we, I've discovered some things that are fairly fit, like your kit has to fit. You can have the best chamois in the world, but if it's in a short that's guttering up on the inside or doesn't fit, then that won't work. You can have the best saddle in the world, but if it's not in the right place, it won't work. You can have all those things, but if they're not um, working together, you know. So um, I find it fascinating, and that's what I'm really excited about the clinic is um, I think we're doing the world's first ever saddle health clinic where people can come, and yeah, position's part of that, but we can find the, the team of people that solve your problem. If you had sort of one tip for most riders about saddle sores and you know saddle health what would it be oh <laughs> one tip well it's, it's a, <laughs> one tip would be don't focus on the saddle uh, it's a multifactorial problem you probably have to approach it as such you know and look at those factors and think well, one tip would be go back in your past look at what you what has worked best for you and then try to work out what what was it about that that was working best i see i've, I've seen people who come to me and say they've had saddle sore since i was eight years old i tried every saddle and every shore and you look at them in actual fact the kit wasn't a problem it was them they were just vastly unstable very uh, moving around all over the bike uh, one such person i managed to convince to stop cycling um, did an eight-week program off the bike, just simply strength and conditioning, in other words, getting them stronger, for a better word, their core or strength ability. Back on the saddle, no saddle sore since. So it is a multifactorial problem, but one tip, it's really hard, but I would say to people, look back at your past and find out what your... And the one sort of tip is that your saddle should never be pointing up at the front. <laughs> Phil Burt. It's hard to remember, but not long ago, the future was looking bleak for custom steel bike builders. At the turn of the century, barely a handful were still making a living, and most of them were heading for retirement. Then came a new breed of craftsmen and women, picking up the old skills, but adding new enthusiasm and modern touches along the way. Now the scene is looking healthy, with some of the original builders given a new lease of life alongside the newcomers. We've just seen the latest bespoke custom-made bicycle show in Bristol, and there's a season of events at London's Barbican, dedicated to the art of bike building. I've been talking to two people who were at both events, Karen Hartley of Hartley Cycles and Matthew Souter of Saffron Frameworks. I'm originally South African, and I spent many years racing bicycles. There was not really a culture of, of building bicycles in South Africa. I spent the majority of my working career as a fine dining chef, but the the aggression and the intensity of, of working in kitchens was just all too consuming, and I hit a very low depressive state. I was really fed up with what I was doing. Uh, the love of what I originally had for it died. And yeah, going through, going through depression... Um, Everything kind of seems very flat and bland and unexciting. Um, and at this point, I I wasn't able to to race because my depression had taken me off my my bicycle as well. And I read a an article by an Italian American frame builder by the name of Darren Crisp, and suddenly just a spark uh, lit inside me, and it just put a big fat smile on my face. 
literally the next day I picked up the phone and I started bugging him with uh, questions and advice and so on and so forth. Where did you learn the skills? So uh, Darren said, you know, there, there are two things that you should learn how to do uh, to get yourself a job. And that is to learn how to weld and learn how to use some um, some machinery. So a lathe and a, and a milling machine. So I went to my local technical college in South Africa and I said, here's a bunch of cash. These are the things that I want to learn. And I spent close on two months with them uh, getting some training, which was great. I convinced my wife at the time to pack everything up in South Africa. And we moved over to to England. And I uh, got a CV together and I started calling around all the the frame builders um, in the UK and asked for a job. I was lucky enough to get a position at Enigma Titanium where I spent close on two years uh, kind of making mistakes, but obviously learning a huge amount and being pretty productive because I was super enthusiastic about what I was doing. And so, yeah, I spent spent two years with Enigma picking up the majority of the skills that allowed me to step away on my own. Uh, and was it always your ambition to make your own frames under your own brand? Yes, it was, right, right from the beginning. I had read interviews from other frame builders that had started off um, with out any any base or any knowledge and it just seemed like a very slow and uneconomic way to uh, to start your business so how long ago was this because I, I can remember sort of 10 years or so ago um it was almost as though steel frame building was dying out I and mean, there were very few people doing it commercially um and yet then suddenly there was a there was a revival did you setting up as an independence sort of coincide with that i suppose the the resurgence had started so the kind of new wave of of young more creative frame builders had set up shop and there were a handful of them that were already in um, in in business. I came from a place where in South Africa no one rode a steel bicycle, no one raced on a steel bicycle, and there were no there were no frame builders. So it was completely new to me. And was there any crossover between your sort of career as a chef and the frame building? Is there sort of shared I don't know any sort of shared likenesses there or shared skills? Very few. I I I, I think the thing that really frustrated with me food, uh, with food is that you spend uh, a day, sometimes two days, preparing certain dishes, and they would just be consumed within a couple of seconds. And the the frame building uh, sort of industry or process is well, not the complete opposite. But you spend weeks, sometimes months, going through the process of uh, deciding what's right for the customer and then creating it and then handing it over to to the rider. I think the thing that I found was similar was you have to be you have to be very consistent in what you do and you have to be exceptionally fussy and almost a perfectionist to make sure what you are producing is of a, a high standard. But you could say that of, of any industry, I suppose. What is the market like now? You know, how, how is business and where is it coming from? I've noticed in the last year that uh, 50% of what we're making is going overseas. It's not going to a particular country. We sell to uh, North America, South America, Australia, Asia, Europe, kind of all over. And, and the rest is uh, orders which are coming from, from the UK. And probably the biggest percentage of that is um, orders that come out of London. So when someone comes to you and says that they, you know, they're interested in buying a, a saffron frame, what, um, w- what is it that you can say to them that is 
kind of unique? What's what's the what's what's the selling point? I, I suppose the the frames that we make or the bikes that we make are very very clean and very subtle and and quite elegant, but are still designed to be raced not specifically raced but to be go out and and on a club ride and know that you're going to be able to keep up with somebody with the the lightest most expensive carbon fiber bike um so it's kind of marrying those two together i think this is the thing that i i play with it's not so much when somebody comes to me i tell them exactly what they should have it's very much a working relationship between the rider and myself to figure out what is the best thing for them if that is the aesthetic of the frame or the tube selection it really does depend on the person who is riding the bike at the end so i've come to mitcham in south london to the workshop of hartley cycles and its owner karen hartley uh, karen you've moved into this workshop um, relatively recently is that a sign that business is okay at the moment yeah not too bad and we were running out of space as well so how did you first get into building bikes building frames i've been a metal worker for i don't know probably 15 years now. Um, I studied metalwork and 3D design at college and then did a master's and similar. Straight out of college I became a jeweller and a silversmith and then gradually worked on bigger scale objects um, and sort of had more of a fine art kind of practice really. And then um, after a few years of doing that I sort of got a little bit I suppose jaded maybe by the art world and um, was looking to do something else and I guess basically I was trying to find something that would sort of tick all the boxes in terms of like making and doing things I enjoyed working with metal um, do something useful as well I think I was a bit frustrated with making art objects which weren't used or um, were just to look nice so I think the bikes kind of ticked all of the boxes Was that background uh, useful when you started making bike frames? Are there sort of transferable skills? Um, yeah, a huge amount. And also because I've been working in various scales as well within metalwork. So I think the combination of all of those skills has been really, really helpful. And um, yeah, it's not... I'm really sort of doing the same thing, but just a different object at the end of it. When people come to um, see you to talk about a bike, do they tend to have a, a clear idea of what they want before they come? Or, or do you help them? It can be quite a variety. So most people know what they want to do with the bike at the very least. What kind of riding they want to do, what surface perhaps, do they want to carry luggage, how long, how far, um, all those kinds of things. Um, and then from from that, we can kind of build a picture about what bike might best suit those needs um, and how we can best, best fulfil that really. And is there a sort of a, a typical customer for a custom-built bike? It does vary quite a lot as well. Um, I, I think I often my customers sort of fall into two or three groups. I tend to, because I mean, based on myself, I'm quite a short person. I've made quite a lot of bikes for short people, partly just because people think, well, you're short too, you understand the problems involved. I end up getting quite a lot of short people. And then also quite a lot of um, I say like middle-aged to maybe retirement age men who just want something really fancy and completely unique and often really shiny and do a lot of people want a bike which they say is going to sort of last them for the rest of their lives yeah i think so and i think that's something that's 
I mean, for me, that's really nice. So I don't want to be making products or objects that A, aren't useful or B, are sort of throwaway in nature. So, yeah, I think that's the reason why a lot of people come to people like me, I think, as well. Karen Hartley. Of course, if you can't make up your mind who should make your new bike, you could always try making it yourself. The Bicycle Academy are among those who say they can help anyone learn the skills necessary to make their dream frame. But is a safe, rideable, usable bike really within the capability of anyone? The Academy's Andrew Denham. Yes, I think the key uh, to, to answering that fully is, is to talk about um, under what guidance, um, and with what prior information um, and defining what rideable and usable really means. So for someone who wants to go and win the tour, they're going to have to be riding a bike that's almost certainly made of carbon fibre because of some of the performance characteristics, weight being probably the main one there. And making a carbon fibre bike um, it presents certain challenges which um, are outside the reach of almost anyone, the equipment that you need, the like. Making a steel frame bike is far more straightforward. Can anybody work with steel? Pretty much. If you can write by hand, if you can follow some instructions, and if you've got someone showing you the process, yes, and it's what we do at the Bicycle Academy. We teach people from all walks of life, different age ranges, from all over the world, to build really high-quality bicycles. And generally, why do people say they want to do that? What are they looking for? Do you know, it's, it's a range of different reasons. So um, for many people, they want to come and spend a week or two with us to have a nice time, a busman's holiday, if you will, and just make a bike to do a thing, maybe to go on a tour or um, as a retirement present to themselves or, or um, something to go around at university. But most of the people come to us because they want to do more of it. So they want to set up as a, as a weekend frame builder, let's say, in their shed or their garage. And uh, the rest want to do it and do it in such a way that they might even do it professionally. And a disproportionate number of our students have gone on to do so, either semi-professionally or um, be, you know, it being the thing that they do every single day. So some of what you're doing is sort of taking the mystery out of it, sort of taking the mystique out of uh, frame building. But surely uh, for a lot of people, the mystique of the the craftsman steel frame builder is actually part of the appeal isn't it that's why they pay so much yeah i think so but i also honestly i think that's a slight misinterpretation so i don't think it's the mystique per se i think it's the romance and so it's the romance that's um uh, generated by a number of things one the fact that it might be someone that they uh, deeply admire someone like dario pegretti a guy who's effectively a legend in so many ways you know they've aspired to own one of their bikes and oh my word, I can finally do that. It's almost like a piece of art. And it feels like you've got a piece of that maker. Not only that, but you feel that that maker has, for that time that he was making that bike, or she, they were making it for you. Therefore, you were the subject of their attention. That's a very personal thing. That feels lovely. Beyond that... Um, it's about the romance that we hope to believe and that we sort of the, 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 the dialogue that we thread into the stories that we tell about what it means. So we've talked about soul earlier um, when you arrived and, and, and words which are really truly n not related to the bicycle in any way, shape or form, practically or really, but they are in terms of our emotional response. That's not to say that they're invalid or that you won't feel it if it's made of a different material necessarily. You can feel it in a different way. So I have students who are now professional who have sold frames, their first few frames, to people who are 
just as, let's say, romantically attached to the notion of that frame because what they feel is more like a patron. That individual who's buying that bike can see the real potential in that student who's, who's now a maker and they want to get one of their early works. And they genuinely feel like that. I know somebody who owns one of the first Ricky Feather frames who knew absolutely, and Ricky won't mind me saying this, that in two, three, five years' time, the frames that Ricky made will be even better. But that person wanted one then. He wanted one that was a capture of that moment in time. So the romance that's attached to it is personal, I think. So I don't think it's more or less or good or bad. It's just different. There was a lot of uh, discussion a few years ago, a lot of spotlight a few years ago, on um, a new generation of particularly British uh, frame builders. Has that sort of, uh, has that scene grown or, or has it, was it a bit of a flash in the pan as some people thought it might be? I don't think it has been a flash in the pan, but the, the peaked interest um, that we experienced in and around 2013 to 2015, I think, is really when it was the crest of that wave. Um, I think, really, if we're honest, coincided with a, a far deeper and, and broader interest in making of things. I think it's fair to say that many people work jobs which they can't explain to their parents. Bikes, for so many people, are um, something which they either use or enjoy from even from just when they were a kid. It's something, I think it's a joyful item. It's a, and, and so those two worlds, this, this lovely um, romantic notion of a bicycle and then making something, I mean, that, that offered so much to so many. And so the media and everybody around the, 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 the frame building industry just jumped on it. And I don't think that there's been any decline I think actually the makers that were making are broadly still making and, and are doing even better. But the attention that's placed upon it or given to it um, hasn't moved on, but it isn't quite as intense. But it's still there and it's still thriving. So now, time to catch up with our technical expert, Stuart Clapp, editor of Rouleur's Desire section. Hi, Stu. How's Essex today? Um, yes, all right. Essex is quite windy today. Wind, windy and, and fairly grey. But um, I, I've just been out and, uh, and I'm glad I did. Uh, Phil Burt was saying earlier on that uh, when it comes to sort of comfort and saddle sores, um, you shouldn't just obsess about saddles. Um, the, it's important that your kit fits and you change the kit, etc., etc. Interesting development this week in that Rafa have brought out matching saddles and shorts. Yeah, they have. They have. They've bought... Um, Similarly to what Physique did a little while ago, where they match a, a short to the saddle, um, Rafa have done the same thing, but they've, they've kept it very much in line with their range. So the Pro Team bib shorts now go with a Pro Team saddle, and a Classic saddle goes with a Classic shorts. They've spent like a couple of years in the making for these, for these saddles. Again, it's one of those things where they've, they've looked at that the, the correct amount of padding in, in the right places if you go onto the Rafa website you can actually pick the saddle um, that suits you best like that suits your sit bones best if you put your measurements in and your weight and then they it calculates which one is for you which is quite handy and it's one of those things that people don't 
tend to get too excited about a saddle. It's probably one of the least sexy bits of kit that you, you're going to own, other than like a, I don't know, a chain whip or something like that. You know, it's but the the, the offset of not being paying an awful lot of attention to your saddle is the fact that you know, as as Phil was saying earlier about the about saddle sores, and they are they are a problem, and it's quite tricky. You don't want to go to your mate. Like, oh, I've got a saddle sore that down there looks like the back of a toad. I had a particularly bad incident with uh, um, my my saddle sore a few years ago. Um, but we'll come back to that later. I can see the logic in putting a saddle and short together. Um, but I haven't actually tried them yet. I can't imagine it's a cheap option, the Rafa saddle and shorts combination. No, absolutely not. It, it, would, it wouldn't be Rafa, would it? It's, uh, yeah, they, they are, yeah, they're a lot, a lot of money. And, but they, it's a very limited run. By the looks of it, they're not going to be doing hundreds of thousands of these. These, these are sort of a, you know, a, a luxury item in an already luxury range. So, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, they're, they're quite interesting. They look really cool. Now, I can't believe I'm actually saying this, but you do have a saddle sore story to tell us, don't you? Oh, yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. It was, it, it's, it's, it's fairly grim. Um, so, as I was saying, I was doing a lot of riding. And I was preparing for that, like, uh, for, I wanted to come into form quite early in the season, and I'm sorry, we're going to have to leave Stu's story there because it is extremely grim and it does go on for some while. In summary, though, Stu's saddle sore got worse and worse and he sought the advice of one of his pro-cycling mates, Dan Lloyd. Dan told him the solution was to allow as much air as possible to get to the affected area. So basically I went commando for about two weeks, right? But at one point it was so bad, like sleep naked like try and like sleep outside the covers to dry it out. But at one point I was, I had this brainwave where I thought, you know, those bondage leg spreader things that you can get, they like clip on around your ankles and there's like a straight bar across. Stu, can I just say, no, I don't know what they are. All oh, right. Yeah. Well, there are those. I mean, someone told me about them. I didn't know anything about them, but you can get those. And I thought that's going to open my my legs up and then i could let the air get to it and i was one click away from getting a bondage leg spreader planning for your next trip Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.